Welcome, everybody, to the third in the series of podcasts from Freshfield's Silicon Valley office. We're going to talk about a variety of people-related issues today, and we hope that this will be of interest to our clients and colleagues and friends around the world. Let's start with diversity, and in particular, board diversity. California adopted some time back a law regarding gender diversity. It's been in effect for two years now. Madge, would you mind telling our friends what it provides and whether it's had any impact yet? Sure. So the law was SB 826. It was enacted towards the end of 2018. The law required by the end of 2019 to have at least one female board member. And it also requires that by the end of 2021 to have two to three female board members, depending on the size of the board. Anecdotally, we believe that absolutely our clients have taken this law seriously, um, corporations that are headquartered in California and have been implementing changes and are looking to implement additional changes. I also just want to refer to a study by KPMG, which found that by the end of 2019, now that was the deadline to have at least one female director, only 4% of California headquarters companies still had all male boards. And those were largely microcap companies. That percentage was down from 29%. So you can see there was a significant change. Is there any enforcement mechanism in the law if a company does not meet the minimum? There is. So there are penalties and it can be up to $300,000. There is a requirement to self-report. And interestingly, there is a significant percentage of corporations that haven't reported yet, but the law does provide for penalties. It's yet to be seen if those penalties are gonna be enforced. There were legal challenges to the law Fewer than one might imagine because not a lot of companies or law firms wanted to be in the forefront of challenging board diversity. What is the status of those lawsuits challenging the law? So it's it's a very good question, and you're absolutely right. What we actually ended up seeing is far fewer challenges that we expected. There were two cases filed. One was by Judicial Watch, and it was in the Los Angeles County Superior Court, the allegation on that was that the SB 826 is unconstitutional under California law. That case is still pending, so we don't have a resolution yet. The second case was filed later on, November of 2019, by Pacific Legal Foundation. That case, the federal judge on that case actually find, found the complaint lack standing initially, and that case is under appeal in the Ninth Circuit. So we have not had a resolution on those questions yet. It'll be interesting to see what happens if a company, which presumably would have standing, a company subject to it, brings the challenge, or if a corporation that's not incorporated in California tries to bring an action under the Internal Affairs Doctrine challenging it. Doro, on, on the subject of enforcement, if a company does not comply or does not comply and fails to self-report, do you think that could form the basis for a shareholder derivative lawsuit? So the simple answer to that, Boris, is yes. Corporations have a duty to comply with positive law. The question here would be if there is a potential defense to that, 
by arguing that it is not the law of California that governs compositions of the various boards of directors, but rather the law of the state of incorporation under the internal affairs doctrine. And the internal affairs doctrine is, has been well established and its history is uh, fairly august, including uh, a turn to the Supreme Court of the United States. So you would expect that uh, a potential defense to uh, such a lawsuit would be that the only law that can govern the composition of a board is that of the state in which the company is incorporated. If that's California, then you have your answer right there. If that's Delaware or Nevada or, or something else, uh, then perhaps one ought to look to the laws of those particular states. There was a recent decision in Delaware about the applicability of Section 220 of the Corporation Code. Can you tell our listeners what that was and whether you think it has any applicability with respect to this law? It actually potentially does. Most corporate laws in the United States have a provision allowing shareholders to make a, an inspection demand for the corporate books and records. And of course, California has one and Delaware has one. And what happened in that particular lawsuit to which you're alluding, which is Jewel Labs, a number of uh, shareholders sought to use the California provision. And the defense that the company put forward was that only the Delaware provision could have applicability to the company because the company was incorporated in Delaware. And the vice chancellor, Vice Chancellor Laster, agreed he held that under the internal affairs doctrine, only the law of the state of incorporation can govern how shareholders obtain records from the corporation. So only the Delaware provision for inspection rights would uh, come into effect and be enforceable. Obviously, California would take a different view to that, and I'm not sure what the what California Superior Court would, would do in similar circumstances. But I think that the ground is laid to uh, apply the exact same principle to any attempt by a state that is not the state of incorporation to impose certain requirements of any kind on the corporation within the scope of the internal affairs doctrine. Apart from enforceability, Madge or Pam, as you've dealt with boards in the technology industry, have you found generally that they're receptive to the gender diversity law or do they have a negative reaction to it? I think it makes sense to remember is that companies have also been dealing with gender and diversity issues more broadly for much before the gender diversity law because shareholders have been bringing shareholder proposals about these issues for a while now. And so I think that there was already a significant level of diversification that was happening on corporate boards as a result of some of those shareholder demands. And so I don't think it's merely a matter of compliance with the law, but also just a matter of shareholder engagement and shareholder interaction that prompted some of these changes. I'm curious, are you aware of any companies where the institutional shareholders urged a no vote during the election of directors because the board lacked diversity? There are, in fact, a number of, of institutional investors who have policies that are focused on diversity 
composition of the board where those institutional investors will vote against board members or just the nominating committee or some subset of the board if there isn't a sufficient number of women. I think that from other diversity characteristics perspectives, I think that's still evolving, but there are definitely lots of shareholder uh, institutional shareholders that are very much focused on diversity when it comes to casting their vote. Now let's go from two-dimensional chess to three-dimensional chess. California, of course California, is working on a law to extend the diversity requirement to racial diversity as well as gender. Could one of you let our audience know what is the status of those? Are they going to be enacted? What's happening with that? Sure, so I'm happy to take that question. So that one is Assembly Bill 979, and it has passed, and it's right now waiting for the Governor Newsom's signature. He has until the end of this month to sign or veto the bill. The expectation is that he's likely to sign it, but we don't know for sure. That law would require that by the end of 2021, each board have at least one director from an underrepresented community on their boards. And by the end of 2022, it could be two to three. The requirement could be two to three, again, depending on the size of the board. And a director from an underrepresented community is one who self-identifies as Black, African-American, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander, Native American, Native Hawaiian, Alaska Native, or one who self-identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual or transgender. So that law has been passed by the assembly and is awaiting the governor's signature. Doru, assuming that Governor Newsom signs it into law, what are the prospects of a serious legal challenge to that law and on what grounds? It depends who is going to be doing the challenge. As Maj has alluded, there could be a number of public interest groups who could be challenging uh, such a law. Their standing remains to be determined. It's before the Ninth Circuit. I actually am not entirely sure that any company is going to be challenging the law. They would for certain have a standing, but I think that the issue here goes beyond the point of whether this is a Delaware issue or a California issue, or it's the internal affairs doctrine. I think our clients and California corporations, those based in California, have a natural affinity to what the law is proposing. So whether they will be doing it because they are required to, or whether they will be doing it because they think it's the right thing to do, I suspect that they will make a move to comply with the law the same way they have made a move to comply with the gender diversity law. There is an interesting governance issue arising, of course. What happens if you have California requiring increased gender diversity according to the definition that Maj has helpfully provided? But you have a different state, and I'm not going to name one so as not to raise points of privilege in parliamentary debates, but one can imagine that other states might have other requirements, and perhaps they would be at odds, shall we say, with the requirements of California. Which law is a corporation supposed to follow? I suppose one could even see some states that were opposed to these laws making selection of directors colorblind or genderblind in creating a direct conflict with the California law. Exactly. Assuming that the racial diversity bill is signed into law, do you think that is likely to spread to other states in the United States, or is this gonna be a California one-off? 
uh, I think that the most important state to uh, watch is going to be Delaware, because Delaware has had a slightly different uh, approach to the regulation of corporations, where rather than prescribe certain requirements concerning the composition of the board and so on, they have focused on providing incentives to the corporation. So there are two philosophies regarding the regulation of corporations uh, at odds here. And that's what's going to raise the primary conflict to the extent that there is going to be one between uh, these two philosophies, whether it's going to be prescriptive or if it's going to be allowing shareholders to vote on these issues and to uh, create the incentives within the corporation on these issues. I'm pleased to invite to join the discussion our partner, Alice Greenwell, who's here from London virtually, but then again, we're all here virtually. Alice, you're the first non-Silicon Valley partner to be in the Silicon Valley podcast, which I think entitles you to a great place of honor. So welcome. Would you mind telling our audience what it is you do professionally? And then I want to ask you whether any of this is happening in the UK or Europe and what the prospects are. Thank you, Boris. Um, and I'm honoured to be the first non-Silicon Valley member uh, to join one of your podcasts. So my day job, as it were, is advising on a whole raft of governance issues for generally UK listed clients across a spectrum, which includes remuneration and executive employment issues. The UK, I think, is probably at the end of the spectrum that Pam has outlined in terms of this being very much driven by institutional investors and the investors really bringing the pressure to bear on companies in terms of the composition of their boards. We have had a couple of initiatives in the UK, the Hampton Alexander Review, which focuses on gender diversity, and the Parker Review, which focuses on what is described in, in the review as directors of colour uh, on the board. And the Hampton Alexander sets a, a target of 33% of the board being women by the end of 2021. And the Parker Review requires one person of colour by the end of 2021. And those reviews publish uh, annual updates and effectively name and shame companies who haven't yet made sufficient progress towards those targets in that period. And those aren't targets that have any teeth. This is about public disclosure and public naming and shaming, as I say. And investors use that information and use it to make their voting decisions on boards and individual director re-elections. As you have advised public companies in the UK and Europe, how sensitised are they to board diversity issues? I think hugely so. Everybody recognises that this is a significant issue. It is of interest to investors and that actually it makes good business sense as well. And I think one of the really interesting things that we have seen is that this isn't just an issue at board level. Investors are now looking at what is happening in the layer below the board, what is happening in the senior management teams and what is happening in the layer below that. And our boards looking at this when they're looking at succession issues more broadly say that it's not just a tick box exercise at the higher, highest echelons of the company. Madge, two years from now, when we're doing the podcast, is there any chance we're going to be talking about legislation in California 
to require greater diversity in the C-suite as opposed to just the board? Or do you think it won't reach that level? I think it'll absolutely reach that level. And, you know, I just want to highlight that State Street recently sent a letter to board chairs of public companies that they invest in. And they said that beginning in 2021, they expect to see reporting on certain metrics. And those metrics aren't just racial and ethnic makeup of the board, but they want to see similar breakdowns company-wide in different levels of seniority at companies. So I think even beyond C-suite, you may start to see it going even lower into the companies. For those of you who've missed this, there's an election in the United States coming up in a couple months. And it may be that depending on the outcome of the election, this dialogue will move from state level to federal level, at least in terms of disclosures, if not requirements. So we'll, we'll stay tuned to that. I want to slide into an adjacent topic, which is lawsuits against boards of directors over their diversity. On one of our earlier get-togethers, we talked about this just having started. And Doro, since you're the litigator here, I want to ask you, was that a blip or is this now officially a thing, that being the legal hierarchy going from a blip to a thing to the next big thing? What are the lawsuits that have been filed? Is this just one lawyer out doing this? Is it spreading? What's the status? So it's for certain a thing, Boris, to use the proper legal nomenclature. It's not just one firm. It's two. Both are from San Diego. Primarily, most of the lawsuits are brought by a single firm. And they uh, range from Facebook, Oracle, Norton, LifeLock, Qualcomm, to companies like Danaher and Gap, which is not even a tech company. This is certainly a trend. You're going to see probably more lawsuits in the coming months. Some will be uh, surprising names. Some will will probably be names that you would expect. What is the theory underlying those lawsuits? I was a little taken aback by that. I always thought of diversity as transcending profit and being more akin to an issue like civil rights. So what if it's not profitable? Should we give up on diversity? I think not. So I am troubled by the premise of these lawsuits. And here are, generally speaking, and I'm I'm generalizing, obviously, their allegations. First, they are alleging that the company has stated publicly that it promotes diversity. But, they allege, there are no African-Americans on the board. They also cite to a McKinsey study from 2015 that found a correlation between board diversity and a metric for financial performance called EBIT, earnings before taxes and interest. Therefore, the complaint concludes, the board must have breached its duty of loyalty to the company by failing to maximize wealth, i.e. EBIT, by including African-Americans on the board. To me, that's not the strongest argument. And then the complaints go even further to allege a conspiracy among directors, presumably to prevent African-American board members from being elected. Those are pretty strong allegations. They also allege that the company misrepresented facts and its desire to promote diversity in its proxy statements. So why is that in there, you'll ask me? In order to get to federal court, invoke federal law, and avoid Delaware Chancery. And indeed, if you look, not a single one of these lawsuits has been filed in Delaware Chancery, 
even though they are all against Delaware Corporation. Which brings me to the initial point of these lawsuits. Diversity is profitable, they say. What if it wasn't? What if boards still pursue diversity even if it wasn't profitable? Does that mean that boards are breaching their fiduciary duties by promoting diversity and leaving presumably money on the table? I don't think that this conflation of moral issues of right and wrong and diversity is most certainly in the right should be subjected to calculations revolving around dollars and cents. But that's just my take. It's hard to opine, and I know you lawyers like to give a safe harbor warning. What is your prediction as to the success on the merits of these lawsuits in general, not any particular one? Yeah, and, and look, I'll, I'll speak to what I've gleaned from the complaints that have been filed so far and more generally. I think they have many vulnerabilities. So as we discussed in our prior podcast, the main legal issue that they all face is the difficulty of alleging particularized facts as they are required, showing that demand on the board would have been futile. That's a pretty high hurdle under Delaware law, which is probably why these lawsuits are not brought in Delaware chancery, they are brought in federal courts. But set aside all these legal issues, right? There are more fundamental business issues with the lawsuits. And again, to be candid, I'm struggling a little bit with them, even from a moral standpoint. So let me unpack that a little bit, including the last point that I just said. The definition of diversity that these lawsuits promote is a very narrow one indeed. They understand diversity to be strictly involving African-American board members. Now, that is absolutely a measure of diversity. But according to these lawsuits, apparently gender diversity does not count. Sexual orientation diversity does not count. Racial diversity itself does not count if it involves other races. And that is an awfully narrow view of diversity. Let me just give you some examples. The Gap Board, which was sued under this theory of a purported conspiracy, has 14 board members. Seven of them are women. One of them is Southeast Asian. The Qualcomm Board has 10 board members. Three of them are women. One other board member is Southeast Asian. I'm not claiming to be a, an oracle of what is diverse or not, but those, those are reasonably diverse boards by some metrics. Now, from my personal vantage point, this is just my view, the California legislature was a little closer to the mark in their more expansive definition of diversity that we've just discussed. I actually think it could have gone even further. Why not include immigrants who cannot vote? Why not include economically disadvantaged individuals from communities impacted by corporate activities? And you see, that's exactly the issue with diversity. My definition is probably broader than a lot of other people's. It's one thing to have a healthy debate about it and promote it. It's another thing to accuse directors of entering into conspiracies to breach their fiduciary duties merely because they have not conformed yet with one's particular view of diversity. And the other objection that I have to these lawsuits, and again, this is from a business standpoint, if you will, is the anecdotal basis for them, right? So they, all of them cite this McKinsey study from 2015. By the way, the McKinsey study was not peer-reviewed, did not include sexual orientation among the definition of diversity, and half the sample of the companies that they looked at was from outside the U.S. The findings of this study are strongest with respect to the executive team, 
not necessarily with respect to the board. At the board level, if you look at the actual study, the correlation is either not statistically significant or very close to being not statistically significant. The study also found that gender diversity has a higher impact on EBIT than ethnic diversity. But then the study draws some very interesting conclusions by looking at the top quartiles and the bottom quartiles of companies ranked according to diversity. And again, this is across their entire international global sample. And they show that ethnic diversity is more impactful if it is not paired with gender diversity. Now, to me, that's a troubling finding. I'm not sure that it's right. And I think that this study should, uh, should probably look at it in, in greater detail. But I, I am perplexed and troubled by the notion that if you promote both ethnic diversity and gender diversity, you're going to have some lower impact on a specific measure of financial performance. And I don't think that decisions at the board level should be made on studies such as this. And I don't think that they should be made with this type of information in hand. Frankly, I am troubled by the notion that diversity should be reduced to the profitability of the proposition. And we should start looking at all of these discrete impacts of gender, of ethnicity, and so on. What if it's not profitable? I think it's still worth pursuing. Notably, and I'll say this last, the study purports to draw causal conclusions. And I think we all know, and we have seen many caveats in all of these studies that say, no, no, our findings can only support correlation, not causation. So I think that this study is being overread into by plaintiffs in a little bit of an opportunistic fashion. Pam, you generally have your finger on the pulse of the institutional investor community. Do you think that given their commitment to board diversity, do you think that they will be favorably inclined to these lawsuits or decide they don't want to have anything to do with them? I think that they believe that these issues are very important and they think that they're focused on them irrespective of any lawsuit. And I think that it's an issue that has been taking up a lot of time in um, shareholder en on shareholder engagement agendas for a while that I think has accelerated over the last few months, possibly catalyzed by the pandemic and some of the protests that we have seen following the pandemic. And I think that this issue isn't going to be going away. I think that to Mash's point earlier, there are a number of investors looking for more and more information on the diversity front at the board, at the management level, and frankly, all the way down the pipeline, largely as a reflection of the idea that if you don't have a fully diverse organization, it's very hard to then come up with a diverse board. And so I think we are very much at the beginning of this and not at the end, and the investors are not likely to take their eyes off of this ball. We're now going to switch to the topic of Regulation SK, which for the corporate lawyers on the call are in their DNA. The SEC recently changed disclosure rules governing human capital. Apparently, someone there was reading Karl Marx in their spare time. Madge, what are the changes and what do boards need to do about them? Sure. So the change from the SEC is actually a very short rule. It provides that in SEC filings, such as, for example, your 10K in the business section, that companies need to describe the human capital measures and objectives that they are focusing on, if material to that particular company. 
So the disclosure rule itself is very broad. They do provide some examples, and again, very limited examples. And they talk about discussing human capital measures and objectives that address attraction, development, and retention of personnel. So I can go on and on about some what, what we think needs to be disclosed in this section. But I think what's really important, and I think when companies discuss human capital management, they tend to say what's good about it, what they're doing that's great, what the goals are. But I think given especially the litigation now, it's really important to not just disclose accurate information, which all of our clients provide, but to provide a balanced view. Here, the great things we're focusing on, here's you know, what we're struggling with and hope to improve. I think you have to be careful that not only are you disclosing accurate information, but you're not omitting something that you may not be so happy about discussing. So the whole thing sounds kind of new age to me. Uh, is this going to descend into boilerplate in which there's a standard paragraph that talks about the importance of the people in the workforce and the need for diversity, and we've fallen short, and there's more we need to do, and the impact of COVID and lockdown on that. Is there going to be any hard data? I take it this is going to be included in MDNA. It'll be included in the business section. My personal view is, given the investor interest in this disclosure, I don't see it becoming completely boilerplate, just like we saw with the hedging regulations, right? That truly became boilerplate. But here, I do think companies, they won't be providing metrics until they have to, but I see them disclosing a little bit more about what is happening in their company, what goals they have and what they've focused on with respect to human capital management. In fact, I'm sure most, if not all of the listeners are aware that BlackRock has already requested that companies report in accordance with SASB and SASB already does have certain requirements to um, disclose certain employee related metrics. And as already mentioned, State Street that's focused on certain human capital disclosures. And so we think that even if this specific disclosure relating to this line item does devolve into generalities, I think that there are plenty of other forces here that will really incentivize companies to put up disclosures that is much more granular, that just, to my mind, is the way this is all going. So I don't, I don't want to turn this into a drafting session because litigators are not allowed to attend all-hands meetings. And without suggesting that any of the points you make are required for every company, can you give the audience some examples, either of you, of the types of things that might be discussed in the human capital section without automatically being required for all our clients? Sure. I mean, I can speak to one that's top of mind. Companies that did make changes to their company-wide compensation program designs and implementations as a result of COVID are likely to disclose those modifications and then also to disclose modifications they made because they valued their employees. So even companies that may have had to reduce compensation are furlough employees, then they will go on to disclose actions they took to, to help employees. For example, if you know employees were offered paid sick leave or health insurance, or if the company established wellness initiatives and mental health services. I do see disclosure being there around changes around COVID and actions companies took from a human capital management perspective to help employees. 
Doro, I think when we next speak, or maybe one time after that, you'll be able to talk about the new shareholder lawsuits that have been filed for failure adequately to disclose material human capital factors. My guess is this will prove to be it's harder to sue over accounting issues because the auditors certify the financials. And after Sarbanes-Oxley, companies got their act together. But my guess is this will be an area of innovation for the plaintiff's bar. It will be very interesting to see, Boris, if you're going to have third parties, third-party benchmarking services, offer to quantify, provide some form of non-GAAP metric with respect to diversity. Are we going to see a battle of indexes and uh, various metrics being circulated around? I don't know. This may remain a a qualitative uh, disclosure. Even if it remains a qualitative disclosure, it will be very interesting to see that if if a company mentions certain efforts aimed to increase diversity in its ranks, does that constitute a an admission that if those efforts were to fail or not move fast enough, or not move fast enough uh, for a particular plaintiff firm, does that mean that you've conceded their materiality? Uh, and if you haven't discussed diversity efforts, are you perhaps not taking diversity seriously because you don't think it's material to your business? As Match said, the regulation itself is terse. Sometimes industry can fill in those gaps with industry standards either sort of informal practices where you say, well, our five peers all disclose X and not Y. But it would be interesting to see if the HR community, in conjunction with the corporate law community, tries to develop some good housekeeping rules here as to what things should and should not be required. That might protect companies as they make those decisions. We'll have more as we start to see filings that address this, we'll come back to our clients and audience on what that's looking like. I want to turn before we run out of time to different but related topic of public benefit corporations. I'm proud to trumpet my ignorance until Pam mentioned these on a call recently. I'd never heard of them. What are they and why should our clients care? Public benefit corporations are very interesting Uh, creatures. So Delaware recently amended a statute that made it easy for companies to convert into public benefit corporations. And what they are is largely similar to a regular in Delaware, a Delaware corporation, except for two main differences. One is that your certificate of incorporation has to specify a social purpose that you're intending to pursue. So it can be, um, it's the requirements are broad and it could be anything that is a social purpose. The second thing is that once you do that, it alters the fiduciary duties of the board. So whereas in a traditional Delaware corporation, a board must make decisions that are in the best interests of the company and its shareholders, for a public benefit corporation, a board has to make a decision after it has balanced three separate things. The first one being the stockholders still, the second one being the public benefit or the social mission that was described in the charter, and the third one being the stakeholders that are most materially impacted by that public benefit. And so after having done that tripartite balancing, that's when the board can get to make a decision. Let's say you have an environmental company 
and it adds to its charter something about saving the earth. Is that a candidate to be a public benefit corporation? That is a candidate for being a public benefit corporation. The interesting thing is that Greenpeace would not be able to sue that company if Greenpeace decided that the company wasn't making sufficient progress on its efforts to save the earth. So you need to be a shareholder um, and own a certain limited amount of stock to be able to bring a claim against the company and its board. There are not very many public benefit corporations yet that are publicly listed, but interestingly, there are two that just um, completed IPOs this past summer. So Vital Farms and Lemonade both went, both completed their IPOs as PBCs. If currently public company wanted to convert to become a public benefit corporation, is that doable? It is, but it's difficult. It requires the approval after the Delaware amendments of 50% of the shareholders before the threshold was higher. So what we are seeing is this is largely happening before a company goes public because it's just easier to get the requisite vote. Is this just a Delaware thing or can companies incorporated in other states do it? I believe the number is around 35 other states have public benefit statutes on the books, but they are not necessarily all the same as Delaware's, don't necessarily confer all the same privileges as the Delaware statute and don't necessarily have the same requirements. So whereas in Delaware, I mentioned it's mandatory that you have to take into account those three prongs before making a decision. Some of the other states only say that it's permissive. So there are variations in many other states. For those who talk a lot about stakeholder focus, might this be a good path for them to get beyond more narrow, traditional Revlon concerns? Well, interestingly, this does very much allow you to have a better focus as a director when you are a director of a PBC. So that is the benefit. It doesn't necessarily do away with any of the general scrutiny that a company can have for its behavior. So I think there are reasons that companies will continue to do the right thing, but this does definitely make the scope broader. Do you anticipate seeing shareholder proxy proposals that the company considered converting into a PBC? I suspect that that would violate some of the SEC rules where you are not allowed to compel a company to do certain things. And so there are probably reasons why you won't see that many of those shareholder proposals. But I think that we have nonetheless seen, for example, some shareholder proposals focused on the business roundtable statement, which is a related concept, although it doesn't have any kind of force of law. The business roundtable statement was a statement that 180 some odd CEOs in the U.S. signed up to, whereby they committed to take into account the interests of five different kinds of stakeholders. But because Delaware law isn't altered, just because you sign up to that statement, it doesn't actually change the fiduciary duties. It's merely a recognition that those CEOs think that these other constituencies are important. And that, to be clear, those other constituencies and things that benefit them could very well be in the best interests of the shareholders. I think the benefit of converting to a BBC is that it doesn't force you to twist yourself into a pretzel. So, for example, doing the right thing for the environment I think there are a lot of companies and directors that think that that is in the best interests of shareholders and the company. But the point is that if you're a PBC, you don't necessarily have to worry about that.
We're going to close on the intersection of people and money, which I guess is the definition of Silicon Valley. There were news articles this weekend about at least one company, maybe others, saying that for their employees who wanted to work from home and relocate outside Northern California, they're going to get paid less because it costs so much to live here. Madge, do you, are you hearing about that from clients? Do you think that's going to move from a company to a thing or a trend? So this is an important issue that I think a lot of companies in the Bay Area are struggling with right now. Anecdotally, and also based on a survey that I've reviewed, I think the majority of companies are going to be looking at delivering market compensation based on geographic region. So even though an employee may start out in Silicon Valley or have spent a time in Silicon Valley, if they were to move to a different region with a lower market-based compensation, I think what you'll see is the majority of companies will lower compensation based on geographic market data. We're going to have to end. We're going to come back to this topic again and again, and more broadly to the question of whether work from home and COVID are going to change one of the secret ingredients, maybe not secret, one of the key ingredients that's made the Valley so successful. Okay, to our audience and clients, thank you all for joining us. We look forward to talking with you again.